Well, let's do this then. It is, uh, what, August 12th, 2018. Our message is, when God gives you the finger. Yeah, let that sink in for a minute. If you are new here and you're wondering what kind of church you've walked into, it's not going to get any better anytime soon. Our subtitle is Faithful to Break Stone. I want to continue in that series. Our services lately have been challenging, but they've also been productive. Our brothers in Indonesia are racking up extraordinary supernatural testimonies. How many of you have been praying for our friends in Indonesia? Amen. Amen. Life's good at LCM. We're going to win. Can y'all say that? I'm going to win. I believe we're supposed to win. I want to show you a testimony from uh, Indonesia. It'll be a video that just kicks off our service. And uh, we'll start that now. We have had such an incredible time here in Indonesia already. We want to thank you for your prayers towards us. It's been an incredible, incredible trip already. And we're about halfway done. Yeah, we want to give you guys a quick update. So far, we've come across a man, an elderly man named Sarito, who was raised Muslim. We had the opportunity to share the gospel with him. We saw him get saved and spirit-filled. Amen. What the Lord is doing in him, the healing that he's bringing into him spiritually, he's starting to do physically with his foot. Amen. Amen. Yesterday, we were led by the Spirit to go to a mall. And at this mall, we, we met a guy named Amo. And he went from just being a name-only Christian to saved, spirit-filled, and speaking in other tongues. <laughs> we had a chance to visit an orphanage close to where Brent lives. We had an opportunity to see children, young and old, give their lives dedicated to the Lord. We saw children saved. We saw them filled with the Spirit of God. And we had an opportunity to see His power restore and renovate their lives. Church, we've got a lot yet to do here. There are a particular young lady named Putri that we believe that the Lord wants to set free from demon possession and light her family on fire with the power of the Holy Spirit. So continue to pray for us. We serve a faithful God. What you are doing there in Texas, what we're doing here is of the same spirit. We serve one God and one spirit, and he is with us both. We serve a faithful God, so we encourage you to continue to be faithful in your prayers, and we will be faithful here to do everything that the Lord puts before us. We love you guys. Have a great service today. Amen. It's good to be a part of a church that is active on five continents. We are advancing the kingdom everywhere that we know how, and in the next years, there will be more. This morning, our brothers from the Remnant Church in Denton, Texas, they drove all the way through the night to get here. Just a few hours sleep uh, on our couches at the house. Would y'all give them a hand for that? If you're new here with us today and you don't know Pastor Hutchinson, take some time to get to know him. He's he's a fine pastor. What they're building there is is uh, beautiful and going to be even more beautiful. We're truly of the same spirit, same way of life. And those of you that I haven't had a chance to tell this to from the Remnant Church, you're in great hands. In essence, the kingdom, it's not about adherence to a creed. It's about a way of life that fundamentally starts with a revolutionized heart. Amen? Amen. Look, I was uh, I was perusing our app. You know, I'm not the technological guy. If you've been sending me things on Facebook, I haven't seen them in about four years. Uh, I occasionally check email, but not that often. 
And if you text me, you're guaranteed to get a response, but it's painful. It's begrudging. I, I like to see people. Even if I put an emoji afterwards because my wife taught me to do that, I don't like to communicate electronically. I like to sit in front of people. But I was perusing the app. I wanted to see how it worked because so many people are interacting with it. I then saw that we, we in the last few months have a YouTube channel. That's weird as all get out, but it's, it's really cool. They need subtitles for me sometimes. I've noticed they put subtitles in when I speak. I looked at our website as well. You know, we have over 1,100 messages online. That's incredible. You can literally watch us grow up <laughs> and out during uh, any, any perusal of those things. One of the things that I couldn't help but notice is that our average message is about an hour and 20 minutes. And that includes all of the guest speakers that speak for 50 minutes. I mean, this is a conglomerate average. That's, um, well, that might be difficult for some of you. And I get that. For others, especially some of you crazy Holy Ghost-filled saints, you know, we're just getting started and you love that. And I know it. But I couldn't help but be drawn to a certain scripture because of this. This is Psalm 90, and I'm going to begin in verse 1. So you might want to get there. Call out there when you're there. Nolan is there. Nolan could be cheating with a tool called OneNote, but we won't talk about that. We'll, we'll let Nolan claim his victory. Susanna, you feel free to lay hands on him for a spirit of truth and power and wisdom. In Psalm 90, in verse 1, it says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn men back to dust, saying, return to dust, O sons of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. The idea that there is a ratio and proportion between heaven and earth is an interesting one. The concept that what we experience as a thousand years is a small amount of time to an eternal being, to the Lord, that it's a day. As I began to contemplate on that scripture, number one, I was feeling better about my sermon times. But number two... It reminded me of something Peter said, and I want to share that with you. So let's go to 2 Peter 3. We'll be in verse 8. He says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Is it pretty clear that Peter is quoting from Psalm 90? Look at the conclusion that he draws from it, because it's beautiful, and I want it to set a tone in here today. The Lord is not slow. Somebody say not slow. slow. In keeping his promise. As some understand slowness. He is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish. But everyone to come to repentance. If you have ever felt like the Lord was slow. In fulfilling his promise. If you have this big burden. About the urgency of the coming of the Lord. Whether that was earlier in the first century. Or your burden is now. Understand, Peter is saying that the Lord is not slow. It may feel that way. It may even look that way. But what is the Lord? He's patient. He's a promise keeper. He wants you to repent. And he doesn't want anyone to perish. 
Man, that's good news, isn't it? If you're here today, the Lord does not want you to perish. And he's been patient with you. The fact that his judgment has not come is not that he's slow. He just can't get it going. It's that he is patient. Say it again. The Lord is patient. Well, with that in mind, I'm going to ask for some patience from you today. I did a little math with my brother Nick today. We took one day and said, it's a thousand years, as the scripture is said, in these two places. That led us to say, well, how long is an hour then? One hour would be 41.667 years. That's simple division. When an hour goes by in heaven, so to speak, in kingdom language, then what happens uh, here would be 41 years. That's incredible, don't you think? That means just during worship, a 40-year testing went by. That's That's crazy except that it's reversed. The 40 years on earth is more like an hour in the heavens. Well, as we consider that, that takes us all the way down to what a minute would be. A minute would be eight months and 10 days. Next time you hear a prophecy that says the Lord is patient with you, consider that these are the terms that we're talking about. This kind of ratio and proportion really brings up some staggering thoughts when you consider it. How many in the room are 37 years old or older? Raise your hands. Wow. That would mean that in the next hour that I'm preaching, if we were going by God's clock, your lifetime will likely be over. Is that incredible? If if an hour to God is 41 years here, then in less than an hour, your eternal fate will have already been chosen. If I preach for two hours, that means that everyone here will have left the introduction to the eternal state, and you will either be damned or saved. Man, how's that for perspective? How many of you would like to spend your next few hours well? Whether we're keeping it by God's watch or by ours, how many of you would like to keep it well? It's a fact in the word, the next few minutes really could determine your eternity. That's an incredible thing. I love to ponder the depth of God's wisdom. In a message called Faithfulness Over Time, it was my hope to inspire you to faithfulness that goes beyond the courageous minute and right into decades of faithfulness to the Lord. As we moved into a message called Faithful Confidence, I'd hope to encourage your confidence by describing the goodness of our Heavenly Father and His faithfulness. Were you encouraged about the seven things from the Sermon on the Mount or the 14 subjects He covered? This morning, our emphasis will be the all-inspiring work of the mighty Ruach HaKodesh, the Spirit of God's holiness. And then next time we get together, we'll talk about the faithfulness of the Son. But this morning, our topic really is the Holy Spirit. So let's go to Luke 11. Say there when you were there. You know, we have a couple amazing events going on this week while you're turning there. Timo goes off to college this next week. I read the story to him in brief 
about Samson now about 12 times. Mighty man of God, stay away from those Delilahs. Brother's got a fine complexion and a great smile. He'll have no problem attracting female attention. But what we want is God's holiness. Amen, Timo? Yes. Y'all want to see Timo do well? Yes. Yeah, I do too. Do you believe Timo can do well? Yes. Are we going to help him? Yes. When Timo relocates to his college campus, we will still be his church. We're going to reach out for him. We're going to expect him. And on the rare occasion he can't make it here, we'll send people there. Amen? That means any day, any time, any hour, we could arrive on campus. Also, the Ariases gave up a vacation to Paris this week. That's pretty cool. Because they're going to go see Buddy in Peru. I want to tell you... I want to tell you that God will do more with your sacrifice than you could ever do by prescribing pleasure for yourself. If you're in kind of a mully grub, if you're in a difficult situation, you don't know quite how to get out of it, take a daring leap of faith for God. Do something sacrificial for someone else. Make sure that your life is outward directed. And you know what? Your whole perspective will change immediately. But you can't pour enough pleasure on your flesh to make it happy. It never will be that way. Are you in Luke 11? Amen. Luke 11, I'm proud of you, Arius. That was the point of that. Uh, Luke 11 and verse 8. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Now, you know this story. We have had a, a man who needed something and he didn't have what, what he needed. So he went to a friend in the evening and he was asking. And this scripture says because of his boldness, his friend will get up and give him what he needs. Another word for boldness is persistence. When Pastor Hutchinson talks about this, he calls it a shameless audacity. The man would have such goal, such, such internal drive that he would keep asking until he got what he was after, and that would convince his friend. In this passage, Jesus goes on to increase the analogy. He one-ups it from asking a friend to asking the same good father that we were talking about Wednesday night. He says in verse 9, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be open. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will he give him a snake instead? Now that answer is, of course, no good father would do that. Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? Say it with me. No good father would do that. If you then, though you're evil, see, he doesn't credit you with being a good father. He says, if you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? How much more is a Hebrew construction? It means if it's true for a light matter like an evil father, how much more true would it be for a righteous father? Your father in heaven, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. There is no way to read Luke 11 and come away with the idea that the baptism in the Holy Ghost, that the gifts of the Holy Ghost are for a select few. There is also no way to come away from this passage with the idea that anybody who has ever shown interest in Jesus has all of these things. 
The clear import of the passage is that it takes boldness. It takes persistence. There has to be a shameless audacity about the way that you go after the Lord. But because he is a good father, when he sees that kind of faith, he will always meet your need. If you who are evil would give your persistent child something that is good when he asks, how much more will our heavenly father give the spirit of holiness to those who ask. So what do we need to do, church? We're going to have to ask. We're going to have to ask how? Timidly? It's going to have to be boldly. We're going to have to ask once or twice. No, you're going to persist until you get what you after. So who has had all the holiness they can stand? Somebody in the room could use just a little more holiness. Like, like, come on, Lord, would you top me off? Would you help me out? See, I, I, I'm not satiated yet. I am shamelessly, audaciously asking God for his spirit of holiness to invade every area of my being. I heard it in a prophecy in tongues today. I heard it in interpretation. I heard a confirmation in English. None of those people met with each other and none of them knew what the sermon was about today. I love the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Those who boldly, persistently with shameless audacity, ask their good father for the Holy Spirit, will receive his baptism and all of the manifesting gifts as a result. Look, I'm a man who was raised by two fathers. In today's perverse generation, it's necessary that I explain that I'm not talking about homosexual propaganda when I say a man raised by two fathers. I had a biological father. I loved him very much. I learned many fine things from him. We had a long, healthy relationship. I also had a stepfather that I loved very much and from whom I learned innumerable things. We had a long and healthy relationship. I was with my biological father the day that his eyes closed, his body died, and his spirit was sentenced before the heavenly beings. It was a sad moment. He knew about Jesus. He had seen lives change. He had been in this church for years. But he died a damned soul. You don't hear that from people very often. You especially don't hear it at funerals, which we stood up and shared. What a tragic moment. His life was less than two hours heaven time. His last words to me, Or maybe tomorrow. That's what he said. Moments before he died. Maybe, maybe tomorrow. Is that sober? Is that somber? I had another father. My stepfather. I was also with him when he slipped into eternity. When he received that thing which he had been seeking all of his life. When he entered into that victor's crown. Can I tell you they were radically different experiences? I was worshiping with my stepfather as he passed from this life into the life that is really life. And I felt the all-surpassing glory and peace of God. I was also with my biological father when I saw fear and darkness grip him. That'll leave a mark on you. What may be surprising to you today is that you also have two fathers. The scripture declares it. 
We're going to go to John 8 and begin there. John 8 and verse 34. Somebody say there when you were there. Could have called the sermon a boy with two daddies. I shy away from provocative titles, though. We stuck with when God gives you the finger. Far less provocative. John 8, 34. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Can I tell you if the word of truth is standing there and he says, I tell you the truth? What he was saying before was true. What he's saying this moment is true. And the next thing out of his mouth is true. I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you're ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. When you sin, you're a slave to sin. When you've been set free, you're free indeed. You are not a true descendant of the men of faith if you have no room for Christ's word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you do what you heard from your father. This is a tale of two fathers. And what you do determines which father you are representing. In fact, the very term Ben in Hebrew means... A chip off the old block. It means the the one that you're most like. In other words, you could use the term to describe a teacher and student if the student is very much like the teacher. You could use the term to describe many things. But let's look further at how Jesus uses the term. Verse 39. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you were determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You were doing the things your own father does. Do you hear how there's two fathers in this passage and how your deeds determine who your daddy is? We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. Do you know what that means? That means people that do not love Jesus do not have God as their father. They have the devil as their father. You ever lived in a house and you wanted to change the house? Don't you dare answer, teenagers. We will beat you publicly. Just think about it internally. If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and now am here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. When you are trapped under slavery to sin and the devil is your father and you are acting like an obedient child to the devil, it is very hard to hear God's word. But God's word can certainly pierce that situation. When we are born again, a death has to occur before new life is established. That's not taught enough. The invitation to life 
is also a funeral. A baptism is both a funeral and a birth in the same moment. Being born again means that you have died to your old father, your old nature, your old ways, and you are now born from above. You are born of the kingdom of God. You cannot be born again without first dying. So when we preach Jesus as help in this life and heaven in the next, and we do not require death of the sinner, then it's a confusing situation. We need to die to our old way of life. We need to get into a new bloodline. We must crucify what was born of our biological father and move on to the new nature given by our good father. Now, the reason I'm bringing all of that up is the primary way that the good father revealed his character and his will is found in the revelation on Sinai of his word to the people of Israel. We're going to begin to turn towards the Older Testament, but I want you to pass up the Sinai revelation and go all the way to Exodus because you're about to see God give a finger to the nation of Egypt's gods. One person, amen. Yeah, you don't usually think about God giving somebody the finger, but today you're going to find out that is an entirely biblical homiletic. Say there when you're in Exodus 8. Wow. Wow. Now, parents, if you feel the need to explain to your children afterwards that we don't give the finger, it is only God that gives the finger in this sermon. And you're going to see that really clearly. Exodus 8, 16. Then the Lord said to Moshe, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground. And throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. They did this, and when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came upon men and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. And the gnats were on men and animals. You following it so far? God does a miracle through Aaron, uh, Moses and Aaron. The magicians try, and they can't. And in verse 19, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen just as the Lord had said. Somebody say, this is the finger of God. God. Yeah, it is. God just gave the finger to the gods of Egypt. He is judging them in a public fashion and there's not a thing that they can do about it. You know, When you point your finger at somebody in this nation, it entirely depends on which finger and what side of it is facing them and all of those things as to what it means. We're going to find out when God gives somebody the finger, it's always devastating. I'll never forget Matthew and I were in India and Matthew pointed to a young man and he goes, don't do that. In India, at least in the southern region where we were, to wag your finger is tantamount to threatening physical violence. It's far, far more aggressive. The little boy clung to his parents and started screaming and crying immediately. They threw the little boy behind him as if to protect his mortal soul from Pastor Matthew. All because of a... The Egyptian magicians recognized God's finger is upon us. It devastated Egypt. 
All of you familiar with the ten plagues? Devastated Egypt. Exodus 12, 12 says that he judged the gods of Egypt. But I want to show you how this concept of the finger of God develops. And say it with me. It's always, always. Devastating. devastating. Deuteronomy 9 and verse 7. Remember this and never forget how you provoked the Lord your God to anger in the desert. From the day you left Egypt until you arrived here, you have been rebellious against the Lord. At Horeb, you aroused the Lord's wrath, and so he was angry enough to destroy you. When I was, when I went up on the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord had made with you, I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I ate no bread and drank no water. The Lord gave me two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. What was it inscribed by? God's giving them the finger. On them were all the commandments the Lord proclaimed to you on the mountain out of fire on the day of assembly. Now, if we consider that it is God's finger that is writing this, hence the title, When God Gives You the Finger, consider what his revealed holiness through his word did. It's devastating. It sounds wonderful, but it's actually devastating. You know what happens. Look at verse 11. At the end of 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me two stone tablets, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord told me, go down from here at once because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have turned away quickly from what I commanded them and have made a cast idol for themselves. And the Lord said to me, I have seen this people and they are stiff necked people indeed. Let me alone so that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. Can you say that's a bad day? God has given them the finger and it showed his holiness. It revealed his character. He wrote his word on stone for all of the world to see. Look at verse 15. So I turned and went down from the mountain while it was ablaze with fire and the two tablets of the covenant were in my hands. When I looked and saw that you had sinned against the Lord, your God, you had made for yourself an idol cast in the shape of a calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took the two tablets and threw them out of my hands, breaking them to pieces before your eyes. How devastating, huh? God gave them the finger. He inscribed his words on tablets and their corrupt behavior shattered the testimony of God's written word. What hopelessness. God has given you something from heaven. He's literally written it in stone. And your behavior destroys the testimony. What despair. To be given God's word, written by the Lord's own finger, And see it broken in pieces to the ground. How have you treated God's word? If your life was on this screen up here. And it was being displayed like their lives are in the written text at the mountain. Would it affirm God's word? Or would it shatter the very testimony of God's word? Isn't that worth thinking about? For two millennia, people have picked on Israel about this event, not realizing that they do the very same thing every week. 
I want to show you what God's heart was when he gave the word. This is Deuteronomy 5.29. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me. Man, if you had to define that first word in English, the O and the H together, how on earth do you define that? What exactly does it mean? Does anybody have a technical definition for it? The best I can do is this is an expression of emotion. It's as if God himself were sighing from the center of his being. Oh, groaning that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always so that it might go well with them and their children forever. God's desire was for his people to do well. Do you know why? He's not slow. He's patient. He doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants everybody to be saved. And he starts with Israel because he did, he does, and he always will love Israel. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me. Do you remember how he gave them the word? What was the tool that he used to inscribe the word? God gave them the finger. In Exodus 31 and verse 18, when the Lord finished speaking to Moshe on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of testimony, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. Over and over and over, the testimony about the law is that it was inscribed by the finger of God. Is that pretty clear? Well, having said that then, We need to know that this is not the end of the story. It's not the end of Israel's story. It's not the end of your story. It's not the end of God's story. In fact, it's the beginning. It's the very, very beginning. I want to look carefully at this subject of when God gives you the finger. It turns out that a first century Galilean Jew who was deity in bodily form had something to say about the finger of God. Let's turn to Luke 11 and verse 17. In Luke eleven seventeen, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom has come to you. Is it clear that the same tool that wrote the law, inscribed on tablets, wrote the very word of God, is the same tool that Jesus is using to cast out demons. Is that pretty clear? Let's look at the parallel passage in Matthew, and then we'll stop bouncing around so much. In Matthew 12, turn to 25, and just say there when you're there. I think this will be interesting for you. In 12:25, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, again, this is going to be virtually identical. Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? 
So then they will be your judges. Now there's a change in this next verse. But if I drive out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Do you see it? The finger of God is the spirit of God. It is the spirit of his holiness. His effect is always devastating because he is holy and we are not. If you've ever thought of the Older Testament as a book of law and the Newer Testament as the work of the Spirit, the law is the work of the Spirit. It was the Spirit that wrote the law. Jesus is the living, breathing, walking Torah of God empowered by the Spirit. This kind of preaching that sets them as juxtaposed to each other is immature and overdone. The truth is we need to look at the work of the Holy Spirit through all 66 books of the Bible, and we will see a consistent pattern. Egypt was decimated because the Holy Spirit was displaying the power of God and his supremacy over Egyptian gods, but the people were unresponsive. Israel had the word inscribed by the finger of God. His Holy Spirit had shattered them through his holiness. He displayed the character of God, and when their character was compared to what was inscribed on stone, the stone was broken to pieces. God is holy. His spirit is holy. Now, when I say something like that, it's gotten quiet, and I knew that it would. It makes me quiet. I I have to sit and think about this and exactly what that means, and the conclusion is difficult. If he's holy and I'm not, How does an unholy people have fellowship with a holy God? You may be sitting there thinking that that feels kind of hopeless. What chance do we have? If he's holy and we're not, as I said, his finger is always devastating. You could develop the idea that he's not lifting a finger to help you. You could sit back and say, look, Job said it, even if I wash myself with laundry or soap, I'll be guilty in your sight. No matter what I do, I'm guilty. The thing is, he already has lifted his finger to help us. I want to tell you why nobody in this room is hopeless. That's important. The Holy Spirit is devastating. And he is full of hope. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 10. We're going to be in verse 1. At that time, the Lord said to me, chisel out two stone tablets like the first one. Somebody say like the first ones. And come up to me on the mountain. What do you mean? We get around two? You mean when you run into God's holiness and you have shattered your testimony through your corrupt behavior, you get a round two? You can just go chisel out two new stone tablets and you can go to meet with God. You mean you get a second chance? See, we like to think in terms of saved and not saved. And truthfully, the world can be divided that way. But I want to ask how saved you actually are. And the reason that I'm asking how saved you actually are is not that I don't believe you didn't come out of Egypt. But how much of Egypt has come out of you? Because they were saved under the blood of a lamb. They walked through the Red Sea and they ate heavenly manna. And yet, they shattered the testimony of God. Anybody in here born again? Anybody in here water baptized? 
Anybody in here tasted of the gifts of the age to come? Any of you shattered your testimony? Yeah, see, their story is our story. It's like having an older brother that you get to watch and go, whew, dad doesn't like when I do that. I'm not going to do that. And then you do it anyway, but you knew better, and your older brother was experimenting. God is not the God of the one chance. He's He's not even the God of the second chance. He's the God of the 10,000th chance. See, he's not slow, as you understand slowness. He is patient. He doesn't want anybody to perish. What looks like it is taking forever to accomplish is actually him being a promise-keeping God, making sure that you have an opportunity to go back up the mountain and say, would you inscribe them again? Would you, if I bring this to you, would you rewrite it? Look, my hardware is broken. I need some new software, right? Will you rewrite this? I need help. You're holy and I'm not. And I'm aiming to be what you are so you keep going back up that mountain. Oh, come on now. Anybody want to go up today? I I need the Lord to write his word upon my heart. He tells him, I will, verse 2, I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets. Now, parents, when you give your children a list of rules and they break those rules, is your next list longer, shorter, or the same? Yeah. You know what I find? I find every year our legislative branch makes more laws. Every single year. We're trying to correct behavior by the addition of rules. So the reason that we have the rules that we have is because somebody broke them, and so we had to make another rule about it. It's like somebody gets shot with a gun, then we have no guns in this area. You get shot with a gun in that area, then we expand the area out to the street. We forget that the guy with the gun's not keeping rules. He didn't add restriction to them. He didn't have to add anything because the law is an expression of God's righteous character. And you can't take away from it. And you can't add to it. It was perfect the first time. It's perfect the second time he gets it. He gives them exactly the same thing. Do you know why? The problem was never with the law. There was always a problem with them. God does not need to find a new and more inventive way to reach you. He doesn't need a new marketing program. And shame on his church that thinks that he does. You know what we need? We need a new medium to write on. This stone is a little too brittle. It breaks a little too easily. I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. So he makes them acknowledge they broke them, but then they can come up to him and he will do it for them again. Say, Lord, will you do it for me again? So many times in my life, that's been my question. Lord, you have saved me. Lord, you've done amazing things. Lord, I love you, but will you do it again? Because I found myself back in the same hole. Now, I had an earthly father. And I saw him give people the finger. But my heavenly father, when he extends his finger, it means something entirely different. The contents of the Ark of the Covenant, called the Ark of the Testimony, or the Ark of His Presence, it tells you everything you need to know about our Father. Look at verse 3. 
So I made the ark out of acacia wood and chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones. And I went up on the mountain with the two two tablets in my hand. I just, I, I can't teach on it, but I want to take a minute to point something out. The first ones were cut out of the mountain by God. Moses didn't carry them up. He only carried them down. There was no hard work involved. It was purely supernatural grace. But after they were destroyed, now it required Moses to climb a mountain carrying stone tablets. It required Moses to present those stone tablets to the Lord. And it required him to ask the Lord to do it again. Are you feeling me here? You get saved and it is not by your works. It is by grace. But after you are saved, when you have destroyed your testimony, it requires you to go back to your father and say, I broke it. I broke it, but I'm still coming back to you. I broke it, but you can fix it. I'm in pieces, but you can make me whole. I'm acting damned, but you've called me to be saved. And he will. Look what he does after that. And I went up on the mountain with the two tablets in my hands. Verse 4, help me out. The Lord wrote on these tablets what he had written before. The Ten Commandments he proclaimed to you on the mountain out of the fire on the day of assembly. And the Lord gave them to me. Then I came back down the mountain and I put the tablets in the ark I had made. You know, the Israelites did not carry around an ark with broken pieces in it. They did not carry around an ark with the broken law of God. All of those sermons that you have heard are patently false. They carried around the ark of a complete character of God. They carried around an ark with the word completely intact, with the God of the second chance that was able to restore his broken people. They did not carry around a symbol of failure. They carried around a symbol of God's restoration and success. If you've broken your testimony, if you're here today and you were thinking that you're hopeless and God won't lift a finger to help you, I'm here to tell you he already has. From the very beginning, he has been writing his righteous character in ways for men to see. He's given us his finger. Proverbs 3.3 is profound. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your hearts. The more you love the Lord, the more faithful you are to him. The more... You are binding these things on the tablet of your heart. Proverbs 7 and verse 1 says something so similar. My son, keep my words and store up my commands within you. Keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. That's another word for pupil. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. You know, those are encouraging verses. In fact, those verses are often our scriptures of the day, right? Sometimes from Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 11, we even take them and we say, hey, Israel recited these things as the Shema. They put uh, a mezuzah on their doorpost with, with these commands there so that they would always be there. They wrapped themselves in phylacteries or tefillin. They even put them on their head. They were trying to live this out. But therein is another problem, isn't it? How do you bind them? How do you put them on your heart? 
Who here has been able to do that? How do you keep his commands? When you learn what they are, how long does it take you to break it? How do I bind them to me in a way that they actually get on my heart? You've never been at this altar grieving, not because of what somebody else did to you. That is really, that's still such shallow water Christianity. You're grieving because you know the good that you ought to do and it's not the good that you're doing. Am I the only one here broken to pieces over my own sin? So I love that Proverbs tells me to do that. But to be honest, I found myself completely powerless to do it. Let's read what the prophet Ezekiel says. We're going to go to Ezekiel 36 in verse 24 because he really does answer the question. Now, by the way, this is entirely written to Israel. The fact that it applies to you is just one of those glorious surprises that is amazing. And I'm so glad that it does. For I, Ezekiel 36, 24. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. Oh my goodness, saints. This is total restoration. Can I tell you, at this point in history, we're between 600 and 500 B.C. A thousand years have passed since they first broke God's word. Now many generations have both stretched out in faithfulness and also shrunk back in sin. And God is still promising to do it again. Some would say he's slow in dealing with them. Others would say, no, he's patient, not wanting anyone to perish. Oh, saints, be very careful thinking that God is done with Israel. Because I can tell you, Ezekiel 36 has not happened. In Christ, we see the beginning of it happening. But it surely has not happened for the nation. And if he would write off Israel, then what hope do you have? Israel has a hope. And because of that, we also have a hope. It is quite literally the hope that you get a new spirit. That you get a new heart. Quite literally that your stony heart, which is breaking the testimony to pieces is replaced by a heart of flesh. And that he will put his spirit in you to move you to follow the decrees and be careful to keep his laws. How many of you want that spirit of holiness? He will cleanse you. He will bring you back from your backsliding. He will help you repent. He will create in you something entirely new. And then he will put the mighty Ruach HaKodesh in you so that you can keep his Law. Ezekiel 11 does the same thing. We'll just put it on the screen for you. He is faithful to break a stony heart. 
He's able to re-inscribe it. The finger of God will inscribe upon your heart. Ezekiel eleven nineteen says, I will give them an undivided heart. No cracks in it. No pebbles. No aggregate. An undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. You know, these statements in the prophets, whether you're reading it in Ezekiel 36 or Ezekiel 11, or you're reading it in Jeremiah 31, they're all coming in the same ways. Right after the people have been devastated by God's holiness. Not living up to the testimony, they are shattered. They are dispersed. They are brought into captivity. They are humbled. They are brought low. His finger of judgment upon them. But that same spirit, the finger of God, he would also rewrite their hearts. Understand that the standard will never change. God's holiness is never added to. It's never detracted from. It is the same. And when you bump up against it, it's you that is broken to pieces. But that same spirit will enter you and put you back together and help you walk in the holiness of God. You can't do it on your own. If you could, you wouldn't need Jesus. Well, the sacrifice of Jesus put me in right standing with God, yes, but you would never stay in right standing with God. The sacrifice of Jesus gave you access to the Father, yes, but your behavior would get you thrown out immediately. So he puts his spirit of holiness in you so that you can be carried into faithfulness, carried into good things. Look at the way that David said it in Psalm 51. Verse 10. Create in me a pure heart. So many of you have heard this, but it's worth hearing again. This word create in Hebrew is bara. Bara is Strong's number 1254. Bara is a verb that only God himself can be the subject of. Nobody else. Not a TV preacher. Not not a anointed evangelist. Nobody else, not even guys on the West Coast in Reading, can borrow. The only people that can borrow, period, is God Himself. It means to create in Latin ex nihilo, out of nothing. David says, "Bara in me a pure heart." He's not saying take my heart and clean it up. He's not saying cleanse it, wring it out, wash it. He's saying, Lord, you're going to have to put something new in my chest that is not there now. Oh man, does it sound like he has been devastated by God's spirit of holiness? Say, no, no, it was sin that devastated him. Yes, that's true. It's his sin. But if there was no spirit of holiness, he wouldn't even be aware of his sin. The Holy Spirit, first and foremost, makes you aware of your condition, and that is devastating. It's why it's so shameful when we come together in church for an entertaining experience, for a bell-to-bell, parking-lot-to-parking-lot extravaganza. You need to come to look into the mirror of God's presence, see His holiness, and see where you stand, and 
Ask him to bridge the gap because he loves to do it. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. He is wanting, uh, let's go to verse 12. He is wanting to restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David is saying, you're going to have to do something entirely new. I've broken the first heart you gave me into pieces. It's not worth anything anymore. You're going to have to put a new one inside of me. Come on now. Have you become discouraged with somebody's behavior? Maybe it's not yours. Maybe it's somebody else. You know, we tend to see others' flaws before we see our own. Maybe you just don't like the way so-and-so is handling something, and it's hurtful to you. And so every time you see them, you're just like, I just don't know what I'm going to do about this. God is able to put a new heart in them. He's faithful to break stone. He will lay his finger upon them. They'll be devastated by their condition, but also renewed by that very same spirit. Of course, before you could ever ask the Lord to do that for someone else, where does it have to happen first? See, it starts with us. Are you discouraged by things that you see in your life? Have you listened to the preaching in this church and from time to time thought they always say the same thing and it just grates on me? When behavior changes, so will the preaching. Oh, I mean that. I mean that. I... I've been doing this consistently for a lot longer than you've been sitting there consistently. We need God to devastate our hearts. And when he wrecks it completely and you see your condition for what it is, you stop thinking something's wrong with the other guy. You know what the real problem is. It's you. In every situation. No, but but pastor, you just don't know, friend. Let me tell you, pastor does know. It's you that doesn't know. It's always you. Because when you get into the presence of God, when he is moving around you and you're aware of it, you're no longer concerned about what everybody else did. Not at all. You're not concerned about things done to you. There's not one victim standing in God's presence. Never. But the moment that you become less aware, the moment that you step away from that, you can't really, but you think that you do, then suddenly problems just abound, don't they? We need to invite the presence of the Holy Spirit to break our hearts to pieces. You know, it sounds maybe like I'm making that up. That's not what you hear in most churches these days. They're concerned with your comfort. They're concerned with you experiencing healing. Amen. You'd have to know you were sick first, but whatever. They're concerned with the supernatural display of God. Amen, I'm all for that too. But they don't understand that there must be a death before there is that kind of life. So I'm asking you, Christian, what has to die? What has to be carved out of you? Where where do you have stones in your heart that are holding you back? What could be done in your marriage that you would be happy about? What could be done in your church that you would be happy? Do you find that your spiritual gift is becoming unhappy in any situation you're put in? Spiritual gift is the ability to invent a victim status in any place in life, no matter how blessed. When you look into God's holiness, you will not see that. 
You will not see that at all. That diminishes him. Let's go to John 16. Friends, you should never underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit to devastate the human heart and then remake it in his image. He is so good at it. He's been doing it for millennia after millennia. And if you want to know if somebody is drawing near to the Lord, look to see how broken they are by their own behavior. If they're not broken by their own behavior, they're still far from the kingdom. It's not enough to want Jesus to save you. It's not enough to not want to be punished. You have to be broken over your own behavior. If you don't know you're in a jail cell, you can't be let out of the jail cell. John 16 and verse 8. When He comes, the He here is the Holy Spirit. When He comes, He will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. Let me just start again. Do you ever need to do that? That's kind of a pun. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. The finger of God, the Holy Spirit, convicts before He does anything else. That verse says it clearly. He convicts the world of sin. Secondly, He points us towards righteousness, towards a heart that yearns for the Father. He first convicts of sin, and then He shows you how to become righteous. Then the finger of God is laid upon the prince of this world, according to John 16. He is condemned through your changed life. Just like God gave the finger to the gods of Egypt, you are a freed slave living as a son with a new heart and spirit, and it's just like God gave the finger to the prince of this world. Let's go to a little different story in John 8. Let's look at verse 1. I think you'll see these same three things at work. And it's worth looking at in regard to what God is doing in this church and doing in our lives. John 8 and verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. He sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Wow. What that must have been like. Caught in adultery. Not a woman who was an adulteress. Not a woman who was reported to be an adulteress. A woman caught in adultery. The 20th chapter of Leviticus says to bring the woman and the man. They didn't do that. They didn't do that because their motives are not pure. But that's beside the point. If you're the woman. And these days preaching in front of a crowd I... Hesitate to tell people to imagine that you're the woman. Some take that entirely too seriously. So let's just say, put yourself in this person's shoes. That's very 2011 NIV, isn't it? Is that gender nonspecific enough for you? Put yourself in this person's shoes. What do you think she's feeling? I would imagine there's a great deal of conviction. She's shamed before the whole world. It's the first thing that she feels. 
They made her stand up before the group. If she wasn't ashamed before, she is now. And said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. In other words, they were willing to humiliate this woman for their own benefit. But that's beside the point. We have a woman here. What is she feeling? Shame. Conviction. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. It's such an interesting concept. Now we have the finger of God writing something in the earth. He's not writing on tablets of stone. He's not writing on the human heart. He's writing something in the earth for everybody to read. How many of you want to read it? Wouldn't you like to know what he wrote? Sermons have been preached about it. Commentaries have been written about it. Everybody wants to know what he wrote. He wrote something, the finger of God in the earth. Could we look at Jeremiah for just a minute? Actually, y'all stay in John 8. Would you put Jeremiah 17, 13 on the screen? Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust. Because they have forsaken the Lord, the what? Spring of living water. We're going to read that in a minute. But in John 7, the story right before this, Jesus cries out in a loud voice. And he says, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. John adds the text. By this, he meant the spirit who had not yet been poured out on those, uh, but would later be. The very same leaders who did not come to Jesus to drink of his righteousness. And why did they not? Because the Holy Spirit had not devastated their lives with their own condition. They couldn't receive the restoration of the Spirit without having recognized the condition of their stony, broken hearts. They thought they were okay. They were not devastated by God, so they could not be restored By his spirit. These people have brought this woman before them. And this woman is undoubtedly feeling shame. And he bends down and he begins to write in the dust. He's inscribing the earth with his truth and his righteousness. And Jeremiah said that they would be put to shame who did not drink of his spirit they would be written in the dust. What an interesting thing that in this situation, the woman is guilty. Don't you agree? And the men are guilty. Don't you agree? And one man who's not there. The guy that was caught in adultery. Everybody is guilty and only one is about to go home forgiven. Do you know why? One of them knew their condition and the others thought they were okay. The finger of God was on Egypt. He could have restored them, but instead it devastated them. Do you know why? They didn't know their true condition. Say, but Israel broke the commands of God. Yes, and they knew it, and they grieved over it, and they presented their hearts before the Lord again. And he is still rewriting their testimony to this day. The truth is, is that something is being inscribed on your heart now, just like it's being inscribed upon the earth in this moment. 
You are either writing your own story, which is sin and brokenness, or God is rewriting your story that says, because of your brokenness, I will make you new. But it takes such a long time. It does. But he's not slow as some understand it. He's just patient. He doesn't want anybody to perish. What if the process you're going through was always intended to help others? Let's consider this woman's process and see if it helps you. Verse 6, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, man, I love that Jesus gave them the finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go home, go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. Then his mom hurled a rock over... No, I'm sorry, that's a Catholic joke. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman! Where are they? Has no one condemned you? Think through this for a minute. It's exactly what John 16 said. He first convicts everybody there of their sin. Secondly, he dismisses the accuser. I'm sorry. Secondly, he points you to life. Thirdly, he dismissed the accuser. We get to see through this woman's painful ordeal, what happens when you realize that you are naked before the heavens? That you have no righteousness of your own. That you are shattering the very word and testimony of God. We get to see what happens. His spirit of holiness is what shows you your condition. Having seen your condition, you can ask him and he will fill you with his righteousness. And then he will dismiss those who were accusing you. You know, Colossians 1.22 says we are now free from accusation. That's incredible. Revelation 12.10 says the accuser of the brother, brethren has been cast down. Convicted by sin and devastated by a spirit of holiness, she was pointed towards righteousness and her accuser was dismissed. Look at the last thing that he says to her. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. How many of you have been trying to leave a life of sin? Those of you that are not raising your hand, have I bored you that much or do you like your sin? We're small enough. I can go name by name, row by row if you want. How many of you are trying to leave a life of sin? Have you found it difficult to do? Have you found it always hanging around with you? Have you found it trailing behind you like a Paul Teal, the illegitimate wife of Michael? Y'all know who either are, do you? Read for Samuel. I find that sin is always there calling to me. So I need something else. I need to be filled with his spirit of righteousness. 
This helps me to leave the life of sin. When you get born again, you are made a new creation. That can only be done by the blood of Jesus, and you can only do it when the Spirit draws you. But that does not mean that you have received power over specific sins that have been beating you. There is a washing and immersing called a baptism in God's Holy Spirit. This is when the believer finds themselves actually freeing themselves from the presence of sin in their life. Prior to that, it's like a newborn. But the newborn has no power to feed himself. He has no power to, to do much of anything other than be cared for by his parents. This is why they could not leave Jerusalem until they had been baptized in God's Holy Spirit. In John 20, they receive a regeneration, but in Acts 2, they receive an empowerment from on high. I'd like to show you a few things that the Holy Spirit does. He convicts the world of sin. Did you see that in John 16, 8? He also reveals himself and reveals the will of God. He also gives gifts. He also teaches and reminds us of Jesus' words and things that are to come. He also leads us as sons of God. He also speaks to us. But best of all, he will resurrect your broken situation. Come on now. If you find yourself knowing the word of God, knowing the testimony, maybe even having taken vows that you have broken, the Holy Spirit can resurrect your testimony. He can put those tablets back together. He'll put them in the ark and he will empower you to carry them on. Your testimony does not have to be failure to failure. It can be I failed, but he's put me back together. The more you fail, the more resurrection power he will pour into you. This is not a license for immorality. It is actually empowerment over immorality. I want to show you some things the Holy Spirit is called. He is the Spirit of Christ in Romans 8, 9. He is the Spirit of Jesus in Acts 16, 7. He is the Spirit of the Father in Matthew 10, 20. He is the Spirit of holiness in Romans 1, 4. The Spirit of truth in John 14, 17. The eternal Spirit in Hebrews 9, 14. And the Spirit of Yahweh in Acts 8, 39. He is altogether beautiful. He is altogether lovely. We have underplayed the faithfulness of the Holy Spirit to help you when you have been devastated by the holiness of God. I've been trying to teach now for a few weeks on faithfulness because I want you to be faithful and confident and faithful over time. I am here today to tell you that you simply cannot do it. If you are not baptized and immersed in his presence. And those of you that come from charismatic or Pentecostal backgrounds. I need to explain something to you. Speaking in tongues is not nearly enough. Prophesying is not nearly enough. Having a word of knowledge is not nearly enough. The manifestation of his presence indicates his presence. But it does not indicate your obedience to his presence. It doesn't indicate your maturing in his presence. It doesn't indicate that you are be being filled in his presence. We don't need a Holy Ghost merit badge. We don't need to have an experience at an altar so that we can go, I've done that. You need to be devastated over your condition, broken to pieces by his presence so that his presence can fill you 
and give you power over what broke your testimony. Is there anybody here that wants to receive power over sin? Turn with me to John 7. In John 7, at the Feast of Tabernacles, while singing from the scroll of Isaiah about drawing water from the wells of salvation with joy, at this feast on this day, men would take a golden vessel and pour water from the golden vessel into 12 earthen vessels. The idea was a visual representation of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit of the Almighty God, being poured out on the tribes of Israel. This is visually what is happening. And in that moment, and at that, that time, Jesus says in John 7.37, On the last and the greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. Are you thirsty? Isn't that a fair question? The book of Jeremiah was written to people who had dug their own cisterns. Those cisterns could not hold water and could not satisfy. So often people are sitting in churches today and they think that they know about the Holy Spirit because they know the right things to say. But you're not devastated over the things that are still in your life from a stony heart. When you come into contact with the holiness of your Father... When His Spirit begins to minister to you, you will both be confident that He is good, and you will be compelled to act against your sinful nature. You will not want to insult a Spirit of grace. You will want power over your sin. The Gospel of Jesus Christ is about freedom from sin, not just forgiveness for sin. It's about a purified bride, not just a purchased bride. The infilling of God's Holy Spirit is about your walk when you get up from the altar, not just the experience you have at the altar. You want to have faithfulness over time? You want to walk in confident faithfulness? Then you must walk in the baptism of God's Holy Spirit. The last scripture that I want to read to you, and then we are going to worship. We're going to spend time in God's presence and you will have a chance to ask for what you need. You can walk in the same way that you walked out and that is entirely up to you. We will not beg somebody to receive what you should die to get. 2 Corinthians 3 in verse 2. Paul is writing to his beloved church. You yourselves are our letter. Written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You show that you are a letter from Christ. The result of our ministry. Written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, 
but on tablets of the human heart, the Holy Spirit will imprint upon you God's word. He will imprint upon you God's nature. And instead of walking from defeat to defeat, you will walk from glory to glory. If you ask Him, then supernaturally He will empower you to walk in ways you have never walked before. Supernaturally, you will find new manifestations you've never had before. You will put together pieces that have been long broken and you will have hope where you have never had hope before. Say, man, I want that guy over there to experience the Lord. Well, how about you experience enough that it overflows? See, every bit of change we want in the world has to start with us. Every bit of it. You want people to be filled with the Holy Ghost? Well, how full of the Holy Ghost are you? I could not say enough to a spiritual crowd. Do not believe that praying in tongues is all there is to being baptized in God's Holy Spirit. It is a scratch of the surface beginning. And everyone, everyone who asks their good father for the Holy Spirit will receive. Will. But before you can ever receive good gifts from the father, you are going to have to be broken over what is wrong that has been keeping you from getting them. Have you been sitting in churches like these for years, but your pride has just never let you humble yourself to say what you need? I've been saved 20 years. I I don't need to go down there for that. Every day you don't is an indictment against your first statement, isn't it? Don't sit in here with a stony heart. You know, sin hardens the human heart. James 4.17 says your sin is when you know what you ought to do and you do not do it. Sin harden, Sin changes the renewed heart he gave you back into the stony heart that he removed from you. It's why we have to keep asking him to do it again and again and again. But no matter what's wrong with you, he's not slow. He's patient. He does not want you to perish. If you will boldly, persistently, with shameless audacity, ask him for what you need, He will meet you right here. I've been saying that for 16 years, and the only reason you're sitting here is because of so many that he has met right here. Not like you've never seen it. Not like you don't know it's real. You just have to get over you. We're going to begin to worship. We're going to sing about his holiness. When we do, I'm going to ask you to do something. Ask yourself whether you're shattering the testimony with the way that you're living. If you're a person who's not happy, I want you to understand nobody will ever associate you with Jesus Christ. If you walk around unhappy, there's no way on earth anybody is ever going to look at you and say, oh, that's obviously Jesus. So what are you doing to the testimony of God? If you're walking around depressed, If you're walking around in defeat, this is your day. That's not me hammering you. That's the word of God trying to address the stone. you got a stone problem and God wants to give it the finger. He'll break it to pieces. 
And then he will put it back together soft and pliable and something that he can work with. I love him for that. You're looking at a man that's not been saved once or twice. Thousands of times. Sometimes I don't even tell you about it. Other times I stand up and preach about it. He is rescuing me all of the time. I need more of him. You're going to find me at an altar crying out for the for the spirit of the Lord to fill me in new ways. If you do not yet pray in other languages, we want to pray for you. You can do that. If you're not yet prophesying, we want to pray for you. You can do that. If you're not yet having words of knowledge and wisdom and moving and healing and supernatural faith, if you're not operating in discerning of spirits, we want to pray for you. You can do that. And the thing that we want for you most is to know that the sin that has been kicking your butt most of your life is under your feet when you walk out of here. Because that is more important than any of the other things. And they're all important. When we stand to our feet, we're going to sing about His holiness. You think about your condition. As we begin to worship, do what you need to do. I'm going to ask Pastor Hutchinson to come and pray with me. Uh, I may get another few guys to help. But the thing is, this is not about an altar call. This is about your heart. If you show up here week after week unhealed, we're failing you and you are failing God. Let's let this be the day that every person in here walks out and you have not one grievance against anybody. You can say my boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places and more than anything, you feel God's anointing to deal with sin in your life. That's up to you. Earlier I asked you if you felt like God wouldn't lift a finger to help you. He already has. The question is now, will you lift a finger for for him? Or do you just sit, cross your arms, and try to endure as you are? Because that's what stones do. Y'all stand to your feet. Father, we ask you now during this time that your precious Ruach HaKodesh would fill this room. Jesus, your blood has set us in right standing, but we must have power over sin. We must have more of your spirit. We're asking that you would come and fill us. Lord, we're asking that you would fill us in a real and meaningful way. Lord, not in a charismatic show, but in a transformation. Will you come and fill us again? You are holy. And we are devastated by the concept, the idea, and our actions that are unholy. We want to be more like you. Rush in and help us, Lord. Help us today. Help us now as we cry.